everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, an oldie but goodie, Knockreiner. I think you've used that one before. Have I? Well, Probably. we're going to be talking about an oldie but goodie attack, so I figured I would... Since old can be good, I'm just... I'm, I'm bringing back the old again, Mark. Fair. On today's but old episode, can be bad, too, as you will learn on this episode. <laughs> We'll give an example of when old is bad. Uh, before that, we will talk about the latest in cryptocurrency heists, and then a vulnerability in a popular Apache popular yes, that's the right word Apache uh, web server application framework. So that, popular, it likes to strut around. It has an ego with its popularity. Keep on strutting, Apache. Let us strut our way in. So let's uh, start this week by talking about my favorite subject, period, uh, which is actually complete sarcasm. Uh, but <laughs> so I guess before you we did, jump into let's be fair, and I, 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 this is not shade, but you do like the subject of this and blockchain technically. And I think it's OK and good to like it technically because there could be some value one day. Uh, if, if it is done in a way that's trustworthy. And I actually think it's the decentralized part that is kind of the issue. But to be fair, you do kind of like the subject, right, Mark? I think I will say I find cryptocurrency and blockchain fascinating. I just am not investing in it right this minute. Yeah, because there's... Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to hop up on my soapbox for a second here. Uh, as if you have not already guessed, our first story is going to be on cryptocurrency. And... You know, I am mixed. It, four years ago, five years ago, like I was super big into the technology itself. You know, I even gave a talk at Black Hat on hacking smart contracts. RSA uh, too, yeah. Or RSA rather, not Black Hat. But, uh, you know, at this point though, if 95% plus of the use cases are just straight up scams and rug pulls, the technology yeah. itself is just super disappointing. Like I... I, do. I, I, feel I don't like think it's... Been, the technology though i feel like it's the like it's the people like the whole idea there i'll go ahead finish your thought i apologize blockchain as a technology i guess is okay cryptocurrency is a abomination and has no use because let's let's look at this like take a step back so for the last you know five like crap 10 years or whatever everyone in cryptocurrency has been saying oh this is going to change the future just think of all the amazing things we can do with smart contracts and distributed apps and you know this distributed decentralized currency just just wait it's going to be amazing just just wait it's been like what a decade since bitcoin it's been like half a decade since ethereum really took off like it's been a long time in comparison let's look at artificial intelligence where chat comes out a year and a half ago and now we've got this massive swath of AI and machine learning. So your point is AI everywhere. is actually showing value very quickly, whereas cryptocurrency bragged about showing value for the longest time and still doesn't seem to be living up. Exactly. To and I know I'm simplifying it like AI, machine learning has been around for a long time as well, too. Yeah. Um, but like generative AI is still pretty dang fresh and large language models are pretty fresh. And how quickly we are iterating and finding great uses for artificial intelligence compared to how long we've been sitting here waiting for people to tell, show us just how amazing smart contracts are when all we've got are crypto kitties and NFTs. It's like, 
My, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with that part of it. But I actually think that the fallacy in the promise wasn't in the technology itself, because I think it's cryptic. It's the fact that the people who made it were trying to live this myth of libertarian decentralization. Like they're upset that they they're either upset that they don't trust governments because sometimes governments fail and we have what's going on in Venezuela or even the United States with inflation. And when inflation happens, you realize the fact that money is virtual. And if the trust factor behind it screws up, everyone's life screws up. And that's why. So you could either look at the positive. They don't trust the government because they think the government screws up. Or you could look at they didn't want to pay taxes and they're just people that don't want to pay taxes or they're actual criminals who are trying to hide things. Either way, the whole idea of the decentralization is the part I think that failed. Even if you look at the positive and think you can't, I don't trust this government, so I want to do it. I don't think we should decentralize. Unfortunately, you can't trust all of humanity. Decentralization by by definition kind of means the Wild West. And I feel like all the cryptocurrency problems, there, there are technology ones for sure, implementation issues. But I actually think the technology could be put to good use if an actual government entity or a trusted entity used it for a digital currency. And so my issue stopped. with crypto, oh, go ahead if people stopped abusing it to for get rich quick schemes and rug pulls. Uh, and exactly. Stuff. Stop try stop changing it into really a Ponzi scheme or a, a flush of stock that they're going to drop. So I don't, I, I never thought I, I always was fascinated by the technology and I would like to see a trusted entity, make it a less decentralized and more centralized way so that we can benefit from the prop, the, the, I think there is promise to digital currency that's standard for everyone. I just think it's the fact that the people who push this <laughs> aren't people to be trusted either. <laughs> and they're almost worse than the governments that are sometimes screwing up fiat currency. So I, mean, I, I, I don't, yeah, that's my It's thought. not all bad. There is some silver lining. Like it's really helped grow the cybersecurity industry by fueling explosive growth and <laughs> ransomware as well too. Exactly, so. yeah. It's, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I to be different, I actually think it's finally our the reason that it hasn't exploded in growth is our government and other governments are not technology forward and they drag their feet. But the fact that bad guys have used it has forced them to try to regulate it. So maybe the silver lining is in five years we'll have an actual centralized cryptocurrency. It will force our government to get off the, their butts and do a real one that we can trust one day. So if it helps speed it up great but either way we're just nerds <laughs> talking about it we're actually here for cybersecurity. what happened in the cryptocurrency landscape mark that's on the, yeah. this podcast more money got stolen uh, so before we <laughs> dive into exactly how that happened though a quick refresher on just like high level how cryptocurrency wallets work um so a cryptocurrency wallet it's basically just a pair of a public cryptographic key and a private cryptographic key and in order to transfer funds from one wallet to another, you sign a transaction with your private cryptographic key saying how much you want to transfer. And anyone else on the blockchain or around the world uh, can validate that by using your public key. Uh, that's in a nutshell how it works. Now, storing those keys is important. If you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, depending on how much of a crypto bro you are in your uh, cryptocurrency wallet, 
you don't want to store that, you know, in your web browser or saved on a sticky note or whatever, or somewhere where a threat actor could get their hands on it because whoever holds that private key owns the wallet, period. And if that key gets compromised, someone could drain it almost instantaneously from you. And so this has fueled like an entire industry around how to protect these wallets. And one of the options that people have is a hardware wallet, where it is a physical, typically USB device that you plug into your computer. There's a software library that interacts with it that then allows you to sign transactions using a key embedded in that physical device. Uh, it sounds insane, but or not insane. It sounds complex, but you can get these for a couple hundred bucks or so for the really decent ones down to slightly less money for some other ones. The main benefit of using a hardware wallet is that you're, well, one of the, I guess, risks of it is you're putting trust in that organization that, you know, they've got good seed uh, security practices to make sure that the seed material that they used for the cryptographic function of these wallets doesn't get compromised. Um, you're hoping that the software libraries that they use don't get compromised. And uh, spoiler alert, in some cases, that can <laughs> actually happen. Uh, so in the world of cryptocurrency, one of the more popular, if not the most popular hardware wallet for the masses is one called Ledger. Um, the Ledger wallet has a library with it that allows you to connect to distributed apps like Ethereum smart contracts uh, called ConnectKit. And last week, users discovered that version 1.1.7 of the Ledger's ConnectKit library on NPM contained suspicious looking code. So NPM being the node package index for JavaScript based software libraries. And it turns out that attackers had gained access to Ledger's uh, official NPM account and uploaded three malicious versions of the ConnectKit module, version 115, 116, and 117, that included code designed to drain cryptocurrency from wallets when they connect to a device. Uh, basically, any application that then updated their ConnectKit library uh, to use one of those compromised versions unknowingly would have tainted their application. Version 177 had that wallet draining payload embedded directly within it, whereas 115 and 116 called out to an external NPM package that is still, as of this recording, still online as well, too, if you want to take a look at how it works. And basically what happens is if a application that relied on this this tainted package updated itself, and then a user plugged in their hardware wallet to work with that application. The user would get a, a window popped up telling them to uh, connect their wallet, basically a fake little connection dialogue. If they connect through that, it then gave the malware permissions to start signing smart contracts and transactions using the keys contained with that wallet and drain all of their funds. What's crazy, I think you're about to get to, Mark, is remember, if you have something like currency and transactions happening in seconds, even if you detect attacks like this, it doesn't take long for bad crap to happen. Usually threat actors will test this out in their own environment. Like you can spin up your own copy of the Ethereum blockchain and do all of your testing on there secretly where no one else can see it. And they'll automate the actual draining function of it so that as soon as they hit a vulnerable wallet or smart contract or something, it is just instantaneous transactions have been signed and there's no coming back from it. Um, and in fact, in this case, the malicious updates were only live for around five hours and the actual active exploit window was only two hours. 
the threat actors managed to make off with about $600,000 in cryptocurrency during that window, which when I first saw that, I was actually impressed that it was so little, or I guess surprised that it was so little. Typically, when we see these like big you know, cryptocurrency heists, they're in the millions or tens of millions. And Ledger is, like I said, like the most popular hardware wallet out there. Um, but I guess the mitigating factor is a application had to have updated to the vulnerable version of this ConnectKit library. And then during users had time. to interact with that application during that time. So the there's a few, a few things that had to align in order for a user yeah. to connect to a uh, tainted application in that case. And you're saying you're also saying six hundred thousand is a low compared to other numbers we saw, but six hundred thousand is still a good day for the attacker and very much a bad day for all the people that lost that money. I, I don't know if it's one or many. I mean, there certainly could be people that lost six hundred thousand in one wallet, and that would be an especially bad day for that person. And this malware basically drained not just Ethereum cryptocurrency, but all of the random altcoins and ERC-20, as they're called, basically tokens on the Ethereum blockchain that are, for some strange reason, people have assigned value to them. It drained all those out of the wallets as well, too. And in the case of one of those, NFTs. so there's a... <laughs> exactly, <laughs> stole all their NFTs, yeah. Uh, there's something called a stablecoin uh, in the world of cryptocurrency, which is basically a coin that is pegged to the US dollar, where one coin is always worth $1 and just trust us, bro, it stays that can, way. Can, can I say, even despite your sarcasm of trust, trust us, bro, if you're investing in something and there's a version of that something that, oh, this is the stable one, <laughs> that alone, <laughs> just the fact that stablecoin exists should be a red flag to you about cryptocurrency, frankly. <laughs> In my opinion, that is totally fair. Um, but one of the bigger stable coins out there is called US Dollar Token or something like that. Um, it's by a, a company called Tether, is the one that manages it. Uh, funny enough, so the threat actor made off with a bunch of USDT, this stable coin, and Tether was actually able to freeze those stolen funds in the attacker's account, which is interesting. When you hear about cryptocurrency, it's supposed to be, you know, entirely. Um, spread out, you know, entirely distributed, you know, no one has control over your funds or whatever. But in this case, a centralized authority was able to freeze funds just like a bank account. That doesn't feel very uh, libertarian and cryptocurrency like to me, it kind of stood out to me. Um, but I mean, all that sass and sarcasm aside on this one, uh, this was like a really potentially serious supply chain attack against a massive player in cryptocurrency being Ledger in this case. And I'm surprised that it took this long to get something like that. Like we've talked about a ton of NPM based attacks all the time, taking over GitHub accounts or package libraries. And it makes sense if some, with something with so many tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars going around in it, then an attacker would spend some time to take over one of these accounts. Yeah, and by the way, I, I, I think you covered this, but we're talking about a, a huge supply chain compromise. It was just a credential theft, like, or, or like I don't know exactly, they don't say how the former employee, I guess it was a phishing attack they claim, but either way, there's, there's nothing complex about this. An employee got fished and bam, all of this crap happened. A, a digital library that everyone relies on got, got trojanized, essentially. 
So it, it doesn't take anything complex, but it should make you think about if you're working at any system that deals with finances in, in millions, let alone billions, uh, something as simple as making sure your users don't get fished or applying least privilege principle. So was this at least an employee that should have had the privilege to be able to make changes in that particular, you know, affect the source code you're delivering via NPM? Uh, hopefully, hopefully it was at least not just a random employee and they didn't have any least privilege principle stuff and in, everyone at the company could do that. So, but it makes you wonder, this is why you try to do least privilege. This is why you should have MFA. Uh, really simple failures can turn into huge breaches. And with NPM specifically, the node package management index, they had been making a push over the last two years to really try and get people to adopt MFA. It was not a requirement for a very long time. And it's only recently that they are moving towards making it a requirement uh, by sending out a blast of communications to people that don't have MFA enable with basically a countdown clock in there. But it feels like you know anything related to, to supply, software supply chains, source code repositories, package it, libraries, like MFA should just be a, a standard for if you're going to maintain something on one of those, you need multi-factor authentication to protect your intellectual property, or in this case, protect your customers. Um, so I guess if you are a hardware wallet user, uh, sorry for just bashing on your uh, favorite little quote-unquote investment for the last 17 minutes, and hopefully you were not a victim of this. Uh, but I... I go so far as to say that this is probably not the last supply chain attack that we will see against a cryptocurrency or a cryptocurrency adjacent accessory. Uh, so Does this mean we should uh, like a, it's a pain in the butt and it makes cryptocurrency useless, but maybe the only secure way to do it is take your wallet keys, print them out, put them in a safe. That of course means you have to pull out that piece of paper and manually type them every time you do a transaction. But I mean, my goodness, joked, I don't know what, what, can you, what else can you do? Hardware wallets were, were the ones. So these days, like you don't need to memorize the like binary or base sixty four encoded bits of your actual cryptographic key. Most uh, cryptocurrency and wallet usage revolves around what's called seed phrases. It's basically like a dozen, dozen and a half or so words that, when put together, can generate that cryptographic key. And so you could, and you potentially nice. should, literally take a brand new air-gapped computer that's never been on the internet, use that to generate your seed phrase, um, save it, print it, whatever, store that in a physical safe at Bank of America, and then securely wipe and reformat the computer. And now you have a, you know, effectively completely air-gapped seed phrase that, if you want to, you can use to go transfer money out of your wallet at some point. So yeah. there are ways to go to the extreme. And if you're going to have thousands or millions of dollars, going to you those extremes may be worth the investment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, as I've finally had money to invest, if all that investment money finally just disappeared because of a hack, I would have wished I went to the extreme. <laughs> you hear that, everyone? Corey's ripe for the taken. <laughs> yeah, because all my investment happens to be cryptocurrency. You 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 know how glowingly I speak about that cryptocurrency. That must be where I put sure all my do. money. I figure it's all a ruse for you to hide the fact that you actually are a massive investor in 
I, I'm actually, what's crap. his name? Sashito. No, I, I'm the guy that wrote Bitcoin. No, I'm not. Not even close. <laughs> I still, doesn't, isn't there like 49% of Bitcoin hashes? Aren't, did that, because didn't he have about half, not, not quite a controlling stake, but whoever wrote Bitcoin Satoshi Naka, Satoshi whatever. Naka, I'm yeah, sure he's a bajillionaire if he's actually a human and not just a name granted by the U.S. Navy's research laboratory as they developed blockchain technology. Uh, I, I thought at one point he literally owned not a controlling stake, but always had. There's this amount of Bitcoin that's unusable because it's all of his, and whoever owns it is. Ooh. I Anyways. remember it was a story at some point that. I, so no one knows who invented Bitcoin. Like this is some mysterious person from the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto. And my personal belief is that it's not actually a person at all. Person? And that mm -hmm. it is a government agency or a group of people at a government agency that collect, created this technology. That And just released the white paper under some made up name. And that's why we can find no record of that human being ever existing. <laughs> that's my thought. It's but possible. Anyways, I could this be is wrong. pure. This is pure tinfoil hat. But you mentioned yourself that machine learning is not even close, even though it really took off. Now we've had it for over decades, I think, in very basic forms. What if the singularity happened long ago, <laughs> and it's actually an AI <laughs> that invented Bitcoin, and this is the beginning of them taking over the world? But <laughs> sorry, dystopian day. Tinfoil hat. Nakamoto on. is actually. GPT the first singularity auto yeah. going back in time yeah. because they also invented time travel because they're all knowing and all powerful. They're exactly or chat GPT point point one. Is this a cybersecurity podcast or an Alex Jones podcast? <laughs> the difference is we're not saying this seriously. We're telling you this is tinfoil hat joking around. He he would probably tell you this is what's really happening. World, you better figure it out. There's no evidence, but I know it for a fact. Sorry. Exactly. Okay. So let's move on to our second story, though. <laughs> back on track. Back on track. Yep. Uh, so or at least on struts. Hey, uh, earlier this month, uh, the Apache Software Foundation disclosed a critical 9.8 remote code execution vulnerability in the Apache struts library, uh, which they've assigned CVE 2023-50164. Uh, if you're not familiar with Apache struts, it is a framework for developing Java-based web applications. It's pretty similar, basically a spinoff of uh, JSP or Java server pages. Uh, whereas with traditional JSP pages, they mix like the page HTML, which renders the page you see, and the Java code behind the scenes that goes and interacts with a database behind the scenes. Struts was designed to split that up into specific sub-functions, where basically you've got a component of your application responsible for interacting with the database, a component responsible for rendering that HTML content, content to the viewer, and then a component that's a controller that interfaces between those two. Um, so it's a kind of modular framework for tying that all together. Um, the vulnerability exploits a issue in the file upload functionality within Apache Struts, meaning that a URL with the, that functionality has to exist on a website uh, just using Apache struts doesn't make you vulnerable. You have to have some form of file upload capability exposed to a threat actor. But if a threat actor can gain access to that file upload capability, uh, they can exploit what's basically just a simple path traversal issue and how it handles those file uploads, which then can allow them to drop whatever they want 
wherever they want on the server, in which case they could drop a JSP web shell in some web accessible location and effectively gain code execution on that server. You kind of in, in described it a little, but just uh, to, to be obvious, most of you probably know what path traversal is. But if you think about a web server, you know, Mark just said this is a very specific web server to control Java modules, but it's still a web server. They should only be exposing the, dub dub, the, the web server directory, nothing else. And path traversal simply means some little flaw that lets you escape the web server's path, which is what a guest or a visitor account should be limited to, and get into any path in many cases on that server. And as you can imagine, if you drop a, a script, an executable script in certain paths, they might be run. And that's why path traversal can lead to remote code execution. Exactly. Or even, you know, if you do have your file uploads locked down and they get uploaded to slash bar slash uploads or something, and that's, you know, a non-executable location. And then from there, you process it with some other functionality to do something with that upload. Yeah. Uh, this would allow you to then drop that file directly into a web accessible location and then suddenly just navigate to that web page and pull up and your web run shell. it. Oh, yeah. Yep. Exactly. Because if you uh, navigate so you can... to that location, the web shell runs because this is a web yeah. server serving the script. <laughs> you can see why this is a pretty dang serious issue for web servers that are built using Apache struts and that support file uploads from untrusted sources. Um, and as of just last week, attackers have been exploiting this vulnerability to drop web shells on vulnerable systems, according to a few different research sources out there, including Shadow Server. So, man, this is the what second week in a row we've talked about hacking web servers through vulnerabilities in web application frameworks. Like last week, it was the uh, the cold fusion issues, which I guess to Adobe's credit, that vulnerability was patched back in March. But now we're seeing new attackers targeting vulnerabilities in Apache struts. And this isn't the first issue we've had with Apache struts. Like it seems like a pretty comparatively complex framework that has quite a few vulnerabilities from time to time. If you are using an application that is built on Apache struts, now is definitely time to update. I guess quick pause for any WatchGuard customers out there. Uh, none of our products use Apache struts. Uh, so no WatchGuard product is affected by this vulnerability. And we've even put out an advisory on pcert.watchguard.com uh, detailing as much in case you uh, need to take that back to your team. But I'm going to brag a little. Mark uh, manages our pcert team under me. And I, I think it's pretty cool that not only a pcert, as you probably know out there, is product secure, uh, product my goodness, pcert, product, product security, security incident re inst response team. <laughs> it took a second for my brain to activate. Uh, but the point is, it's we're product. mostly talking about issues in our product. But I think one of the good things we do is post things that aren't about our product, but are in open source. People out there that know we use open source often pro or reactively ask us, oh, I saw this vulnerability in this open source. Are you affected? I think it's cool that we sometimes, when there's a big issue in an open source platform, even though it has nothing to do with our product, we proactively put it on our pre-cert page because we know you, our customers, may not know everything we, you, you might be asking, hey, do you guys use this? Are you vulnerable? So I think it's cool that it's not just our product stuff. It's it's little other open source alerts we put there too, just so you don't have to go searching. Uh, if we'll, you don't have to come ask us, we'll tell you, hey, we know you might be worried about this particular big vulnerability, but don't worry, it's not in our product. 
or you know if it is in our product we'll still put out an advisory oh, absolutely. with either yeah, mitigation yeah. guidance or upgrade guidance on how to resolve yeah. that vulnerability too and that's kind of the point that that second part is what a piece or team always should be if, if it does affect your product you absolutely better have that alert but not everyone does the alert about the things that don't affect their product so way to go piece or team had ourselves on the back go watch guard uh but yeah man this is it's not been a good month for web application uh software i guess it's time when, to what, revert back to php <laughs> when is it ever man i feel like all we've seen in our internet security report under network attacks has always been web app stuff i mean it's changing yeah. a little occasionally but it, I mean, it makes uh, sense. I used to always say the web is the battleground. That's kind of the thing that is always exposed. So it's where attacker attackers go where the attack surface is. is exactly. If it's something that is literally designed to be typically accessed from untrusted locations, it is a pretty big attack surface to go after. Um, so long story short, though, if you are running anything that uses Apache struts, uh, yesterday was the time to update that. Uh, so moving on to the last story, though, I just saw a blog post last week uh, posted by researchers at Group IB uh, describing the activity of what they've called Gamble Force, a threat actor using <laughs> SQL injection to attack Asia-Pacific organizations. When I first saw Gamble Force, I, I don't know, Corey, were you ever a Dragon Force fan? Or yes. you at least play Guitar Hero and were at least I, like, so, loosely associated In so with many Dragon ways. Force. I, yes. I am a I am a Dragon Force fan. I watch YouTubers that actually it's like the most requested song when random YouTubers are trying to play songs for folks. I remember learning it on Guitar Hero, uh, and uh, now that I do Beat Saber and stuff, there's some cool custom Beat Saber maps that are insanely hard and technical. That that uh, what's it through fire and flame through or the whatever fire and the flames. That yeah. is the song that played in my head when I saw the the headline for this article. Yeah, Gamble but... Force. Exactly. Gamble force. Uh, so this all starts back in September of this year when Group IB identified a command and control server hosting several tools that are used to conduct SQL injection attacks. And they went and analyzed those tools, analyzed some of the potential targets, and they identified the threat actor's first targets were predominantly linked to the gambling industry, which is how they came up with this name, Gamble Force. Uh, so far, they have targeted more than 20 different websites, primarily government, gambling, retail, and travel, in the countries of Australia, China, China, Indonesia, the Philippines, India, South Korea, Thailand, and the notably non-Asian country of Brazil. Uh, Can we pause here for two seconds because we like we're we're U.S. based people. And we always kind of pick on. Uh, uh, you're U.S. Russia, based. I'm Texan based, China. Corey. Oh, you haven't become the Lone Star State yet. You're still U.S., <laughs> Mr. Texas. It's only big in Texas because they have small egos and have to show big <laughs> things to feel good about themselves. Oh, sorry. I I'm love sorry. Texas. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I love you, Texas. I'm just making dumb jokes. I really Proceed. do love Texas. I really do love Texas. But the point is, we always are kind of pointing out threat actors in a lot of other countries. I notice U.S. isn't represented here, and there are some jerk ass criminals in the US too. So I just want to point out, I don't I we'll, we'll find out if this is attributed at all, but to me just looking at these sources, th this could as easily be a US criminal as any other. 
It could be. There are some signs to point to it's potentially not, or if it is, it's a U.S. criminal that does not primarily speak English. Speak and English, we'll and we'll get second. to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so of those 20 targets, they've successfully compromised six companies. And in some cases, they stop after some reconnaissance, but in others, they've extracted the databases containing user credentials from these victims. And so pausing for a second about not necessarily attribution, but for some interesting tidbits from here. Um, so first off, um, Group IB gained access to the server and they could see some of the commands that were being run. And one of the commands that was run, I think it was like 60 something times out of all 200 something commands they could see was changing the, uh, the shell uh, Windows language to English which would indicate that they are connecting from a client where English is not the primary language for that host. Now, they were also using some tools, including Cobalt Strike, and specifically for Cobalt Strike, they were using the Chinese version of it, uh, which stood out for a bit. So these are some signs that either someone's really trying to throw them off their trail, or they were most likely at least a Chinese-speaking origin threat actor. It doesn't necessarily mean China. Chinese is spoken a lot throughout uh, Asia and specifically East and Southeast Asia. Um, but those are some signs pointing to at least a potential geographic region. Um, and I guess another way you could, you could look at this picture, by the way, is it really is Southeast Asia focused other than Brazil. So it, I guess it could easily as be, I mean, Singapore has, has many yep. different languages, but Mandarin is one of the ones that many people speak. So, yep. Anyways. Could be. Um, so they most of their tools, though, Group IB noted, were just off-the-shelf tools. They used a web shell called SuperShell. They used Cobalt Strike, as we just stated, off-the-shelf tools like SQL Map to actually perform some of the SQL injection and scope out and recon on the target. It's it's interesting seeing what's a, a pretty, I mean, comparatively old-school style of attack, SQL injection, uh, succeeding against so many victims, or at least a breadth of victims here. I'm not going to use names, but I remember one time you and I were in an internal meeting talking to people that do engineer and we brought up SQL injection and they were like, God, SQL injection, that's so 1990s, who cares? I get it's old style, but guess what? People are not designing good web applications with SQL. Who gives a crap how old it is? The truth is, <laughs> People haven't learned their their lesson yet. They haven't parameterized the procedures. They're, they're still doing stupid things in SQL with web servers. So I get that it's old, but I still think that many sites are vulnerable. And you remember my old story then. Yeah, the simple SQL injection that's right in a user interface field where it's like a login parameter and you literally can do the SQL injection right in hopefully that stuff is gone because hopefully you've done the bare minimum and understand what SQL injection is. But there are so many parameters that websites are grabbing from our web clients that you can, you can modify in burp suite that I just, I hate when people call SQL injection old because until people stop making the damn mistakes, I don't give a crap how old it is. In fact, it makes you seem more stupid for still engineering the bad mistakes. <laughs> Okay, if it were so old, why haven't you learned your lesson, Mr. Engineer, 20 freaking years ago? <laughs> and that's a good point. It is, it's old, but it is a solved problem. 
Uh, like there yeah. are tools at your disposal for sanitizing input. I mean, crap, ask a code whisperer or chat GPT to validate your code and it can probably point and out all will. SQL injection issues. Yeah. They, there's there's code verifying things that will point it out for you and won't let you, you know, push push your source to the repository until you actually fix all of these things. All you have to do is use them. All you have to do is use them. And sure, yes, the frameworks that have the secure way to do things could introduce new vulnerabilities themselves, but that feels like it's a smaller subset of issues. If you're going to write custom code, there's so many things that should be able to do this for you. Exactly. Yeah. And there's even free options too, even on GitHub with public repositories. Um, some of their code analysis tools are free as long as it's a public repository. It's free because they take what they learn and feed it straight into a uh, copilot from GitHub. But <laughs> like they, you have tools that you can use as long as you aren't ignorant of their existence. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the it has been decades, and I think the window is firmly shut on, you know, this is a solved issue, and we really just need to stop releasing applications that have SQL injection flaws. I would presume some of it could just be, I, I know we're jumping around here and this necess wasn't necessarily targeting IoT things, but I feel like there's always a new generation for solved issues. Like for everyone that was writing traditional web servers, you know what I mean, that were on computers and exposed as web servers, they learned this a long ago and it's solved. But then someone creates a, a dumb IoT device like a bird feeder with a video camera and they have to put a web management interface in it. So it's technically a web server, but they don't know anything about they, they They have not done any research. They've never had a web server. All they're really trying to make is a bird feeder, but make it smart. And they're just reintroducing old issues because of pure ignorance and being new to the field. So I feel like it's yeah. because there's more and more companies that were never traditionally computing companies, but everything is becoming smart that they just repeat circa 2000 mistakes over and over again but hey just like cryptocurrency just means more job security for you and i corey mm. until we get burnt out according to gartner <laughs> exactly <laughs> see you in 2025 <laughs> or not Hey everyone, thanks again for listening as always if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to rate review and subscribe if you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can apparently reach out to us on Instagram. We're at WatchGuard for now. Uh, otherwise, you can shoot a message on X slash Twitter slash whatever. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again and for we listening. Have, we have puppies. We deserve five-star ratings. Pet the damn dog, Corey. <laughs> uh, you will not hear from us next week. We are off until January 8th. See you then.